Oh, and right. you're making me uncomfortable. No, I mean, I, I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, I see where you're going with that. But. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, Head of Marketing and Product Development at Coleman, where we're excited to announce a new line of celebrity-endorsed outdoor equipment. Your next camping trip will be a breeze in with the portable George Benson burner. Ooh. And for a limited time, all purchases come with George's family recipe for roasted white rabbit with giblet gravy. Order now. <laughs> oh. Well done. Oh, thank you. That was very clutch. Yeah, our listeners didn't hear the fact that like five minutes ago, Sean said he had nothing <laughs> and then <laughs> proceeded. He's... He was just quiet while Jeremy and I talked about Jeremy attending Farm Aid. Yeah, Sean just walked into the game. We chucked him the ball, and he just hit it from half court. Wow. Yep, I work well under pressure. What can I say? <laughs> well, I'm also working on a new product, Sean. Oh? Yeah, I'm calling it Mother's Placebos. Interesting. And I'm trying to get the rights to a, a childhood cartoon character, but she's refusing to talk it's alice oh from alice in wonderland go ask alice yeah she's not saying anything though interesting well that kind of ties to something i wanted to talk about oh i'm co-host peter cook and along the same lines with what co-host jeremy was just saying i've long enjoyed the jefferson airplane psychedelic rock classic white rabbit but i feel like for such a signature song of that genre it's a bit short they really need to stretch out on that song i was wondering if either of you knew an artist that ever did that with white rabbit i can think of exactly one. Oh, who might that be well that would be George Benson. Nice. The jazz guitarist? The jazz guitarist did a fantastic cover of White Rabbit, but we're talking about Breezin. No, I'm just kidding. We're not talking about Breezin. <laughs> <laughs> My co-hosts were stunned for a moment. They're like, Wait oh, a minute. no. Did I, did I miss something in the group chat? <laughs> is he just fully audible? <laughs> One day you'll do that. I, I thought today was the day. <laughs> yep. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for a future app. But <laughs> keep us on edge. It'll keep, keep you on edge. <laughs> I'll be flipping a coin before the the show starts, and you guys are going to be like, oh, no. <laughs> What's he up to? But, yeah, we're talking George Benson's CTI jazz classic White Rabbit. Title track. And that is the title track, and that is the first track I want to play. Ooh, we're so, I'm guessing 
Old George is going to stretch it out a little bit like it should have always been. He is going to do that, yes. Is that side A, track one? That is, in fact, side A, track one, first cut from White Rabbit, White Rabbit. of interpretation of that song seems weird like it wouldn't make sense but as soon as you hear it it's like actually this song is kind of perfect as a stretched out flamenco jazz crossover kind of thing like it just somehow works very naturally yeah yeah i suppose that the potential for that was always there with the chord progression to that song but they really bring out its capabilities of going that direction on this version. Yeah, it's got kind of a chromatic movement there that is common in flamenco guitar, which George must have uh, noticed and was like, hmm, I know what I could do with that. I'd actually read a quote from him that he was totally unfamiliar with the song or the band before recording it. Wow, that's that was a pretty big song. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I guess he was just totally steeped in the jazz world. Yeah, well, I mean, he'd been fully in it from a young age, right? Yeah, and this is the beginnings of him trying to step out of jazz world to some degree. It's a weird step to be like, I want to get into pop music. I'm going to do 
White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, yeah I got in the song <laughs> in a flamenco style. Yeah, in '71. Yeah, it was about a four-year-old song, which doesn't sound that long, except musically, '67 to '71, <laughs> a lot happens. Yeah, yeah. There's that shift out of psychedelia. Was this recorded in '71 and then released in '72, or released in '71? Uh, the the first one I was. I was off when I said it was came out in 71. It actually came out in 72, but as you said, it was recorded in 71. All right, cool. Important distinction. Yeah, and even further from, you know, psychedelic rock. Yeah, in 72, you're fully into the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a record I first heard when going to see Sean DJ years ago. He was like, hey, I'm DJing, come check it out. And I went down there mostly just to talk to him and hang out, but also <laughs> to hear him spin. <laughs> Could, couldn't have cared about what he was playing, just wanted to talk to Sean. <laughs> well, I did in fact care because he put this white rabbit on and I was like, "What? what is that? <laughs> it like grabbed me right away and he was like, oh, it's George Benson. And I was like, whoa, this is... It pretty immediately reminded me of Wes Montgomery, which uh, ends up making a lot of sense once you hear the story. But yeah, kind of similar, taking a well-known song and putting it in an instrumental jazz, somewhat poppy kind of formula. Yeah, I thought that it was funny that this was your first selection of season five. And it's worth mentioning now before we forget that this was one of the top picks that won us the artists that we keep mentioning that we need to cover that we put the poll up on our Facebook group and the people voted for George. Yep. George Benson. I'm sure they wanted Breezen. And I was like, no, I want that one <laughs> Sean showed me. That was sick. But I just <laughs> thought it was interesting because during the season break, we aired a rewind of a old episode and it was uh, one of them was West Montgomery, a day in the life. Yep. Uh, one of your early selections. Yep, I got to type. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, was this the only one you considered for your George Benson pick? Were you back and forth? Do you own other Benson records aside from White Rabbit? Uh, this is the only Benson record I own, actually. I'm familiar with some of his other jazz stuff, but actually listened to Breezen for the first time in preparation for this episode. Uh, and like Give Me the Night, his other pretty big album. Yeah, love that so, one. Yeah, I hadn't listened to his like stuff that was extremely popular before. I'd only heard, or I have, I do have a surround sound copy actually of Body Talk. Cool, no. cool. But you knew the track Breezin when you heard it, right? No, not really. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That one evaded me. So you knew it more by reputation than by anything of what it sounded like. That's fascinating. Yeah. Because I, I feel like the general cultural opinion on George Benson has shifted a lot in the last 10 years or so since I first started working in record stores. He was kind of one of those guys that was like a joke for record collectors almost. Like, you know, this guy was just like the ultimate cheesy jazz pop guy, like... And then a few people would tell you, no, he's got a few good CTI records. And now I feel like his catalog is just more celebrated across the board, which I'm very happy to see. 
Well, we featured a solo that he ripped on that Johnny Hammond episode that we did a few seasons back. And it, you know, that was maybe at this point three years ago. And you, you were very defensive of George Benson. You're like, I'm so sick of people speaking ill of George Benson. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like even since then, in just the intervening three years or so, uh, I've heard more respect for him from people. Yeah. Maybe it all started there, Sean. It all started there. (laughs) The ripple that changed the cultural opinion of George Benson. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he's got classic jams like Turn Your Love Around. Yeah. The best. So good. I got to say, though, when I was listening to this record again, it made so much sense as a Jeremy pick. It's got the flamenco classical guitar sound in there. It's got the interesting arrangements, but it's not too string heavy. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's just got that great CTI jazz funk sound. A little bit of classical influence going on, too. Yeah. And I'm just a sucker for jazz covers. Yeah. On top of all that. Same. Well, let's get, I want to cover some of the history of George Benson so that people have a better understanding of uh, this this record cultural shift that Sean's describing. <laughs> We're at the forefront. Little Georgie Benson was born in 1943 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Steel City. Mm-hmm. Oh, so he's 80 this year. Correct. And uh, he's still out there. This is a bit of a spoiler, but... He has shows set up in 2024 right now. (laughs) Nice. He began singing extremely young and won a singing contest at the age of four, which, as I've stated before, I'm highly suspicious of these super child prodigies. But he performed on the radio at this age, too, as little Georgie Benson. Ah, that's why you referred to him that way. That is why I referred to him that way. <laughs> so I thought that's such a cute little name so for him. You, you may question their ability to do these things, but you certainly acknowledge their names <laughs> that they were given, their nicknames. Yeah, Dr- and there's this, there's probably recorded evidence out there somewhere, <laughs> but I refuse to believe it. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, even more kind of unbelievable, but probably happened. He was singing and playing ukulele at age eight in illegal nightclubs. <laughs> that like illegal ukulele. They tried to ban it. That's what you got to do when you're eight <laughs> and you're a ukulele player. <laughs> yeah, like who's letting an eight-year-old kid in to be the performer at an illegal night, like any nightclub, but especially an illegal nightclub? Like, what is this scene he's a part of? I mean, if if they're Operating illegally, I'm guessing they, they don't care about <laughs> yeah. child labor laws. That's fair. I yeah. want to know what the set list was at those performances. Like, what songs is he playing yeah. in these weird scenes? Apparently, he was playing songs good enough that got him recording an RCA at age nine. Really? Yeah. A major label. Wow. Yep. So... Pretty wild start, and George's stepdad is like, 
man, you got to start doing instrumental stuff. Like, stop with this singing and ukulele crap. And he builds him his first guitar, like, himself by hand. So shortly after that, George begins singing and playing around Pittsburgh in R&B and rock bands. And he's, what, like 12? uh, This was, like, teenage years by then. I think he was around 12 when he first got that guitar. It was either 11 or 12. But yeah, in his teens, he started playing in these rock bands around town and R&B groups. Ripe old age. Yeah. So he begins playing jazz guitar. He's getting into some of these jazz players, including Wes Montgomery, who he idolizes. And he begins playing jazz guitar with brother Jack McDuff, who is an organist around Pittsburgh. One of the best. One of the best, according to one Sean Hartman. (laughs) Take it from me, folks. And he recorded his first album, his first solo album, The New Boss Guitar, at age 21, after he pulled up roots and moved to New York. Yeah, it's about time to get serious when you're 21. Yeah. He wanted to get in the scene, and he sure did in a hurry. He started meeting important people in his life pretty quickly, including his wife of over 50 years, Johnny Lee. And he met his hero and soon-to-be mentor, Wes Montgomery, who encouraged him to, you know, keep going, and met John Hammond of Columbia Records fame, who signed him. And then he met and started working as a sideman for Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Freddie Hubbard. <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to start. Yeah, where do you go from there? <laughs> <laughs> That's like the pinnacle for most people's career. He still goes up. We'll get to that, but he's <laughs> got some room up to go and he goes there. But let's play another track before we dig in any further. I want to play Elmar next. Elmar. Is that the last last cut? Correct. It is the last cut on the album. And this is the only one on the album written by George Benson. Side B, track two. There's only five tracks on this album, so we're going to play four of them, but they're very small parts. These all stretch out, as Peter likes to say. And this one's like an 11 minute track, so we'll uh, play you a tiny bit of Elmar. Thank you. 
So George Benson wrote that one. It kind of has a similar flavor to his take on White Rabbit. And it's almost like he's bookending the album with that feel. Oh, good thought, Peter. I'm going to bet it might have something to do with the players he has at uh, his disposal on this record as well. Oh, yeah. And I don't think our listeners heard this was off mic, but you, the two of you know who are the, the players are on this record, and I haven't looked at the lineup yet. Yeah. So you'll get the, the listeners will get genuine reactions from me when I find out. Yeah, we should be filming this for YouTube. Like, a, Peter reacts to hearing the lineup for the first time. <laughs> Content to George people. Benson's White Rabbit from 72. <laughs> Recorded in 71. Highly niche content. I, th- I think a couple of our listeners would be into that. That's probably true. So, you might have heard a little electric piano in there. Yeah. Do you have any guesses on that, Peter? Well, uh, I'm based on just some things I've learned already, I'm going to say Herbie Hancock. You'd be right. <laughs> yeah. That's Herbie Hancock on the electric piano. This is actually what they want, is me guessing all of the players on this album. Yeah, this is this is the game I like. I bet you'll never guess Ooh. the producer on this record. Uh, let's see. Hmm, CTI, Creed Taylor. What? He got it. All right. Guess who arranged it? Guess who arranged it? The uh, CTI record. Oh, um, what's his name? The the same guy that arranged the uh, the what the strings on the West Montgomery. Correct. Yeah, Don Sebesky. Don Sebesky. Yeah. Well done. Now there's no way you can guess the recording engineer. <laughs> <Okay>. What? <laughs> Come on. Here's another one you can maybe guess. The bass. Um. What would be the safest guess to make? Michael Henderson. No. Um, Ron Carter. Ron Carter. <laughs> That's, that was first in my head, and then I doubted it. <laughs> yeah, Ron Carter on bass. Yeah, Billy Cobham on the drums. Whoa. Oh, I won't make you keep guessing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably for the best. I, I wasn't really entirely joking about the recording engineer, though, because it's the guy that does all the CTI stuff and is easily the most important recording engineer in the world of jazz vinyl who would it be rudy van gelder oh yeah yeah i remember you talking about his initials being in the grooves is that correct yeah rvg in the runouts because he did like just about all the blue note stuff from the classic period so you know people prize the work that he did in getting the sounds of classic jazz onto vinyl one of the best if not the very best yeah, so we've only begun here, and we're already batting out of the park on this thing. Got Jerry Berliner on the Spanish guitar, it says, who actually played on two artist records that we've covered, Morgana King, and recently featured Laura Nero. Nice. nice. Along with a ton of other stuff, dudes on everything. Same with Earl Clue on acoustic guitar. Oh, yeah. And this is his recorded debut, correct? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Well, that's that's pretty significant. Yeah, because Earl is also a child prodigy. I think he's like a teenager on this record, getting to guest with his hero, George Benson. Wow. Yeah, he's on here. You got Erto 
Morira on percussion, who is played with Miles Davis and Weather Report and other big jazz things. And was also he was also band leader on a few different CTI records. Oh, didn't know that either. Sean, you're a wealth of CTI info. Every time we've done a CTI or CTI-adjacent release, Sean is in his element. Yeah. yeah. Pretty pretty much everything else, he's kind of doesn't know much of anything, but CTI. <laughs> the CTI super fan of the podcast. It is well documented. Gotta have one. All right, I'm going to start breezing through these other Ooh. names because there's a bunch. I like your wordplay. Ooh, I didn't even mean to. Wow. <laughs> I got the impression you didn't, so I had to point it out. Uh, you got Phil Bodner on flute, oboe, horn. You got Hubert Laws, Mr. Crusader. Brother of Ronnie. Brother of Ronnie on flute and piccolo. You got Phil Krause on vibraphone. Gloria Agostini on harp. George Marge on flute, clarinet, and oboe. Jesus Christ, how many flutes do you need? <laughs> Romeo Penque on flute, clarinet, oboe, and horn. Uh, Jane Taylor on bassoon. Wayne Andre on trombone. Jim Buffington on French horn. John Frask on trumpet and flugelhorn. And Alan Rubin on also trumpet and flugelhorn. I think you should have made me guess all of those, and I wouldn't have gotten any of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You started strong. I'll give you that. Sure. I, I felt good. I'm glad you stopped where you did, though. I'm impressed that you didn't just name the rhythm section and then say, and a bunch of people on horns and strings, because that's what I generally do. <laughs> yeah, kind of I know. We kind of, uh, no disrespect to the people that play those instruments, but we do gloss over them a lot. Yeah, I figured they a lot of them are like accomplished and in their instruments, so I figured they at least deserve a mention yeah yeah so often the the string players especially it's like names you don't recognize them and you look up their credits it's most of the time like oh they're doing prestigious classical performances and then just every once in a while like oh, i'll do a quick jazz session i guess yeah i need a few extra bucks on the side right well that is an impressive lineup though i will say mm. yeah you catching your breath over there yeah i am <laughs> yeah George brings his A-game here. Obviously, as we mentioned, he was in New York rubbing elbows with all the biggest names in jazz at that point. So he developed good access to, to high-quality players. But he starts out as primarily an instrumental jazz artist. In the jazz world, he is becoming like a guitar god. He's like the guy you know, come early 70s. He's like one of the top dudes doing it, one of the most respected names in jazz. And this is his 10th album, White Rabbit, his second he did on CTI. And this is when he's trying to shift into a more pop direction. He kind of, as, as you pointed out, he kind of hit the pinnacle of jazz and like where that's going to go. And he wanted into the pop world. He had done a cover of Beatles, Tunes, The Other Side of Abbey Road a couple years before this. And he would continue moving in the pop direction after this. So, Yeah, and that would have been 
pretty close to the time frame Abbey Road had been released, so he, he would have been like, "Oh yeah, he <laughs> dropped that." I want to say like the next year. Yeah. From here, he goes on to be signed by Warner Brothers not too long after this, and sang his first song on 1976's mentioned like five times already, Breezin. <laughs> and it is the first jazz album to go platinum and is the best-selling jazz album of all time. <laughs> so if you want to know how could he go even higher than playing with Miles Davis, he made the best-selling jazz album ever made. Yeah, which also explains some of the Benson hate out there because if you were around when these records were dropping, it would have been impossible to avoid George Benson. And I could see people getting a little sick of it, but removed from all of that context, it's just really damn good music all the way through his career. Yeah. And he was, I was surprised. I, like I said, I hadn't listened to his later stuff. He's a really good singer too. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the funny thing is I never knew until now, basically, that he is the vocalist on those songs that he sings on. I, I figured it was like Norman Connors where he got another vocalist to do it. Yeah, no, that's him just ripping the vocals. He won a Grammy for the song he sang on on Breezin, a cover of Leon Russell's The Masquerade. And in 1976, he's also touring with Minnie Ripperton, who's in the last year of her life at this point. This is after her diagnosis. And he's also recording on Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. So come like 76, he's kind of top of the mountain. Yeah, probably at that time, one of the most famous jazz artists, (laughs) contemporary at that point. Yeah. Let's get to another cut. I want to do, I want to do Little Train for the next one. For some reason, Sean didn't think I was going to pick Little Train. Why is that, Sean? (laughs) I just, I had to make a guess of one song that wouldn't be on there, and it just seemed like maybe the one, but there's not a bad song on this record, so. Yeah, I was like wondering if you had some kind of. Well, I was. It's got the most vocals, and I thought maybe Jeremy would be like, "I like this record, but when Aerotil does those vocal things, I don't like it." Uh, that's you know that's fair. Okay, <laughs> but I picked it. We're gonna play it. Nice. This is side A, track three, Little Train. Thank you. 
taking us to shred town on that one and as we mentioned these songs i mean that that thing was just getting heated up before we had to cut it off so check it out but again it's that tasteful melodic shredding that not everybody can pull off i had read some people talking about benson's guitar playing saying that he's just as accomplished as a rhythm guitarist as he is as a lead guitarist. And I think that shows when he's really cooking on those solos. It's very rhythmic and it's more engaging because it's not just just trying to cram a bunch of notes in there. Like he's telling the story with the solos. I have no sense of a lot of the modes that being kind of like the keys or or (laughs) that he is he plays or the, it, while he's soloing because I just don't have that much knowledge of jazz guitar modes. But he finds some weird notes to play that, and he makes them work. Yeah, that's it sounds kind of like major key a lot of the time and like rarely ever dissonant. But yeah, he does find those like out notes but places them just right so they don't come off as like dissonant yeah, they, or too strange. They don't sound like errors yeah and he he's self-taught correct because george still doesn't read music correct yeah that's that's wild (laughs) yeah yeah i was pretty surprised to find that out surprising fellow and he wasn't Mm -hmm. done by you know we talked about him hitting his peak in 76 but in 1980 he would go on to record another Big album for him. Give me the night with Quincy Jones. Quest Productions. And uh, the the song Give Me the Night was written by our old friend Rod Temperton from Heatwave. Very cool. Yeah. Also the author of Thriller, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the author of a lot of Quincy Jones related hits. He was kind of the secret magic behind that whole camp. Very cool. George was putting out like platinum records through the like mid 80s and then his later 80s albums were still doing like gold record numbers. So he's just like flying high through the 80s as well. Just big star of which. Yeah. In 83, he got to work with a young Kashif. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I think we told the story on the Kashif episode, but like there's this whole thing of Kashif getting invited to write a song for George Benson, and George was just like the ultimate hero in his mind. But Kashif was just like so busy writing 
and producing albums for like 30 people at a time that he didn't prepare anything in advance and then just like show oh. up to the studio and just bullshitted his way through like here's i know if i push this button the drum beat's gonna start and then i'm gonna improvise a bass line and george wants to know what the chords are they're uh these chords all right george loves it i just wrote a song for george benson right here <laughs> yeah. in front of him in the studio and nobody knew it <laughs> wow. yeah that's coming back to me now yeah yeah i forgot that was george that he was doing that for but yeah that's wild yeah that was the song inside love parentheses so personal from in your eyes from 83 well, George would go on to win 10 Grammys. He was given an honorary doctorate from the Berkeley School of Music and the NEA's Jazz Master designation, which is like the highest honor you can get in the jazz world. He put out 37 albums total, including 2019 was his most recent, Walking to New Orleans. And as mentioned earlier, he has shows set up on the books for 2024. So that's his uh, deeply impressive career that we kind of glossed over all the <laughs> the big highlights. But yeah. Well, Sean, I'm going to ask you now at this point, if you had some time to put together a list of recommended further listening for our dear listeners. Why do we still ask him? <laughs> it's my favorite bit of the show <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes we get really awkward with it hopefully our listeners appreciate that it keeps it fresh <laughs> keeping it awkward and fresh i'd buy that for a dollar style i'm actually pretty excited about this recommended artist list you know i often try and get three records from the same year that an album came out or I'll try to sometimes get records we've talked about previously, or sometimes I'll get records that the artist we talked about has played on. But for this list, it's all of the above. I have three recommended albums from 1972 that are all artists we have talked about before, and all three of them feature George Benson on guitar. Hell yeah. Yeah. First up, Johnny Hammond, Wild Horses Rock Steady. 1972 nice honestly that when we uh featured george benson's solo on the johnny hammond episode that we did that was one of the first times that i really appreciated george benson and johnny hammond as far as i could tell from what i remember can't go wrong with most of his stuff yeah especially this early 70s period and george is such a tasteful session player he really serves the song and the artist that he's working with he's not just there to show off and hog the spotlight what's next next recommendation hank crawford we got a good thing going 1972 oh yeah we talked about hank on our christmas episode last year right correct we talked about that record specifically um, it's like a secret christmas record because it's not marketed as a christmas record and most of the songs are not but just has winter wonderland and the christmas song on it for some reason <laughs> <laughs> still strange but fun great record and last up the great freddie hubbard put out one of his all-time classics in 72 skydive really can't go wrong with freddie but that's a particularly good one yeah it's another guy that i really was pretty ignorant to 
until we talked about him. I think Jeremy, you brought a Freddie Hubbard record. Yeah, he's uh he's a big name in jazz. I didn't know you were not hip to it, but no, I don't know if I emphasized that enough. That was pretty much my introduction to Freddie Hubbard. Huh. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, just missed him. Sometimes it happens. There's so yeah. much music out there, guys. <laughs> and we don't even talk about modern music. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't I don't keep up with modern music anymore. I'm too busy thinking about the past <laughs> with this <Yeah>. show. <laughs> How all of these early 70s artists connect. <laughs> yeah. Now the modern hipsters don't really even exist anymore, at least not as they did. But all the people up on modern music, they're like, "You listen? What do you listen to that's new?" I'm like, "Um, uh, here's an album from like four years ago. That's <laughs> I'm just getting around to." Yeah, for me, it's like whatever the most recent, like early aughts indie person's like new album is. Yeah, the ones that are still around. Yeah. I'm old. Am I old? I'm not old. I'm not old. <laughs> this is the rest of the episode. <laughs> Just working this out in front of people, all you're, right? You're younger than I am when we started this podcast four years ago. And I still there, am. And you will be for another three years. There you go. So cool. anyway. <laughs> anyway, George Benson, go check him out if you're like a hardcore jazz head go get his earlier stuff if you like good singing and poppy jazz check out his later stuff but mostly just get breezing just get breezing yeah and this record white rabbit oh yeah and if you see this one what were we gonna leave on jeremy Ooh, a song i really like i thought you were just gonna say a song (laughs) we're gonna leave it on a song as is our custom, the song I've chosen is California Dreamin'. Yeah, that's right. I I was listening to this, not looking at the titles, and it actually, I took me a minute to place what it was. (laughs) Yeah. That it was the, the mamas and the papas. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, we'll leave it there and wrap this episode up. All right. Thank you for listening to Another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman, and Wes Montgomery recorded an album called California Dreaming in 1966. Oh, so this is another version of California Dreaming. I wonder if he was inspired by Wes's version. Probably. Very cool. Well, here's side B, track one, California Dreamin', George Benson. Have a wonderful time.
Thank you.